right, good morning, everybody. Welcome here. Those of you who are new here, I'm Chris Dirks. I'm the main teaching pastor here at Southland. And, and uh, we're coming to the end, uh, close to the end now of our, our series called Seven, on the uh, seven letters, the seven churches in Revelation chapters one through three. Today we're going to do the letter to the church at Philadelphia, which is letter number six. And then uh, next week we will cha- uh, tackle uh, the last letter, the letter to the uh, church at Laodicea. And uh, it, I, for me, I've just been learning so much and growing so much. It's so amazing to be able to, to read, uh, even 2,000 years later, Jesus' specific words to local churches. And, and even though he was speaking directly to those churches, now by the Holy Spirit, he speaks to our church through his words to these other churches. And so uh, that's really exciting. Last week, we looked at church number five is Sardis. And Sardis is, is one of the most, if not the most, stern rebuke of, of all the letters. This week, today, this morning, is the opposite end of the spectrum. So last week's uh, letter was, you know, the big rebuke. Sardis, basically, that's all they get is rebuke, almost. And today's letter, the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, Philadelphia uh, gets only encouragement. There's no rebuke in this letter. So opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, Philadelphia was a very uh, severely persecuted uh, church. And like Smyrna, Philadelphia and Smyrna are the only ones that, that there's no... There's no negativity, there's no rebuke. Now, some people, when, when we read that, you read the, the letter to the Church of Philadelphia, there's, there's no rebukes there, and some people wonder, well, wow, okay, this was a, this was a perfect church. Like, these were, there's a church full of uh, perfect people, uh, you know, a bunch of goody two-shoes. All they ever wanted to do was pray and read the Bible, and so Jesus didn't have a single bad thing to say to them. And, uh, and of course, the answer to that is, is no. Uh, I think con- the moment I ask the question, I think we all realize right away that's ridiculous. No pe- nobody's perfect, okay? Mother Teresa wasn't perfect. Billy Graham, you know, nobody. You can pick the, the greatest saints in history. There's no such thing as a perfect human being. Um, but I think subconsciously almost, you read these letters, and you know this church is, is very persecuted. It's very easy to put these people on a pedestal sometimes. You put uh, persecuted Christians in churches, and especially in a letter like this where there's no rebuke from Jesus, you put them up on a pedestal, and you think, these were, were super Christians, and you almost, you, and then you can't relate to them. And if you can't relate to them, then, then God can't speak to us through it. And so the thing you have to understand is, again, it's so important, is these were regular uh, human beings, Okay. And it's true, Jesus didn't have a rebuke for them, but that actually should really encourage us because it's not, the reason Jesus did, it's not that there was nothing wrong there. It's not these people never did anything wrong. It's just that Jesus didn't give them a rebuke. And to me, that's actually something encouraging about Jesus because I think a lot of us have this picture of Jesus and, and maybe it comes from your childhood. Maybe you grew up in a home where your parents were really nitpicky and they just nitpicked you on every little thing in your life. And they were always criticizing you, everything about you and every little thing and you can never do enough good. And the thing that's encouraging when we read this letter of the Church of Philadelphia is Jesus isn't like that. Isn't that awesome? I mean, these were not perfect people, okay? They're not perfect people, okay? Don't, we, they were regular human beings like you and me But what Jesus is looking for is, Jesus isn't looking for people who will never make a mistake. He's looking for people who have a heart that want to follow him. And if you have that heart, he's not standing over your shoulder nitpicking every one of your weaknesses and faults. Now, he is holy and awesome and pure and righteous. And he is absolutely committed to bringing you and me on a journey to where we are going to be holy and pure and righteous. But he can get us there. And not, he doesn't get us there in a nitpicky way. Like this, this picture of someone standing your shoulder over your shoulder and always nitpicking you. You know, some people I think here today, and that's what I want to speak to in this, in this introduction here right at the beginning. I think some people here today, uh, and I know of people like this, you go to bed every night and, and every night you go to bed with guilt. And every night you go to bed and you worry 
over the day, you, you, you feel guilty about that thing you said over there, and you feel guilty about that thought you had, and you, you just feel guilty over every human weakness and fault, and you just go through your whole life just feeling guilty and condemned all the time. And you know that's not actually how Jesus wants you to live? He can change you by the power of his Holy Spirit. Yes, he convicts us. There's a need. When the heart is not right, there's a need for conviction and repentance. Oh, we talk about that a lot here. But I can go through my life, and there's two ways. I mean, there's many more ways, but there's, there's certainly two ways that Jesus can change us. One is through conviction, and I can look back in my life, and I can see times where, you know, the heart's not right, and Jesus just comes in and says, you've got to change that, and there's a rebuke from him. But there's other times in my life where my heart is soft to him in an area, and there's just human weakness there, and over time, as I'm just walking with him, there's no point of, like, stern rebuke. It's just after a while of walking with him, there just comes a time you look back, I'm different than I used to be, okay? And so there's this picture of Jesus as we think about the church of Philadelphia. These are regular people. Their hearts must have been right because there's no rebuke, okay? But it's not that they were perfect. And so I think it gives us a lot of hope that even when we're not perfect, I think there's, that Jesus wants to encourage us a lot and he also wants to affirm us. And if you can never hear that, then there is, is, is something wrong with your picture of him. Why don't we pray and then we'll just begin to read. Lord Jesus, I just thank you. I thank you that you are not looking to call out every single fault in us. We would be overwhelmed. I thank you that you want to encourage us and you want to affirm us. You don't just want to rebuke us. You want to encourage us and affirm us. And I just pray today, Jesus, that as we go through these words in this letter, Father, I just pray that those people who are here today who struggle with condemnation and guilt all the time, Lord Jesus, I just pray that you would speak your holy assurance into them. Oh, you are holy and pure and righteous. And you are pulling us to a place further and further where we are growing in holiness and righteousness. But Lord, there's also encouragement. When our hearts are right, Jesus, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for right hearts, not perfect people. And I pray that you would help us to come in that place of assurance and gratitude and joy and acceptance, Lord, in your spirit as we follow you and submit to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, verse 7 here, starting the, the letter. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens, okay? And so uh, Jesus introduces himself here to the church, and as we've seen throughout these letters, the introductions are always very important. Jesus has a reason behind the introductions. And so the question is, what is this key of David? Why is Jesus introducing himself to the Christians of Philadelphia as the one who has the key of David? And of course, it's stuff like this, that sometimes makes people afraid to read the book of Revelation because they don't know. You read and you come across things like this, like the key of David and stuff, and you don't know what it is. And some Christians do weird things with this. In fact, I ran across, there's a, there's a whole cult that is built off of this verse. I, I, they, would call, they would call themselves Christians, but they're a, they're a cult. They're a Christian cult. And they've built a whole theology off this one verse of what's the key of David. And I've seen lots of people do weird things with the key of David. And so that's something that scares people off Revelation. I'm not going to read this because I don't, I don't know what these things mean. But I want to give you a key now. We're going to stop for a moment. Because I've been looking for an excuse to talk about this in, this in this series in Revelation. Because there's something you need to know. And we're going to see it here with this key of David statement. There's something you need to know that's going to help you understand Revelation better. And here's what you need to know. Revelation, the book of Revelation is built, literally built off of hundreds of quotes and references and allusions to the Old Testament, okay? And uh, the, the, until you figure out, that's part of the reason I think why a lot of Christians 
don't, aren't familiar with the book of Revelation is you can't, you can't understand the book of Revelation until you start to get a handle a bit on the Old Testament. Literally, the, the, Old Te- the, Re- the book of Revelation is woven together with hundreds of quotes and allusions and references to the Old Testament. I, did, I actually I did some research this week. There are f- more than 500 Old Testament passages are referenced in the book of Revelation. That's really incredible when you consider the fact that Revelation only has 404 verses, okay? Like, literally, I mean, it, 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 it's like if the paint, the book of Revelation, if the book of Revelation is a painting on the wall, the paint he's using to paint with is the Old Testament. 60%, I looked at how many verses I actually went through, and by the way, I, I got a list. I, I, have a, I have a list put together by a, by, by a guy who's an expert in this, and anybody who wants it, I'll email it out tomorrow. We'll put it on our church Facebook page, all that sort of stuff, and it actually has a list of all the, book, the, all the verses of Revelation and then all the Old Testament passages that are, are referenced in those verses, okay? And it'll, it'll just totally help you. When you begin to see the Old Testament, I remember when I began to see this a, a few years ago, when you begin to see all the Old Testament allusions in Revelation, Revelation just pops, it becomes 3D, because there's all this whole depth of meaning. He's pulling stuff out of here, and, he's, and the Holy Spirit is putting it together in a new arrangement. He's pulling all these flowers out of the Old Testament, and he's making a new flower arrangement, and, and it's all inspired, and it's just powerful, and the book just becomes 3D when you, when you begin to see this. Just this, this little letter to the Church of Philadelphia has 10 Old Testament passages it alludes back to. And so I, I actually went through the book this week, and, and 60% of the verses in Revelation, so literally 6 out of 10, you go 10 verses of Revelation, take 6 of those verses, 6 of those verses will have references back to the Old Testament. I mean, pretty much anywhere you put your finger down on the page in Revelation, you're looking at another piece of the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit has just brought out. And when you begin to understand that, you can begin to go back and, and look, lots of these things that seem confusing. See, John, the Apostle John, when he's writing this, Jesus is speaking to him, and and. John's mind is steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures. He's steeped in the Old Testament. And of course, Jesus is steeped in the Old Testament because he wrote it. He's God, okay? So they're just speaking. John is writing out of that, his mind being steeped in that. Jesus is speaking out of being the Word of God. And they are, it's this inspired book that just, that this thing that comes out. And you can, and there's just so much there. There's so much truth there when you begin to understand that. So when you understand that, this, that's what's happening here with the key of David. This is not some random thing. Jesus is not just saying, um, you know, I have, he's not saying to the church of Philadelphia, I'm the one who has the key of David, and he's just expecting us all to just, and, and he's not expecting the Philadelphian Christians and us to just figure out this is some random symbol. He's pulling something very specific out of Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. I'm going to put it up there. And you're going to see this, okay? This is directly, and this is all over, exactly what I'm showing here right now. This is not one verse. This is the entire book of Revelation. Like I said, the the whole book of Revelation will pop. It goes 3D once you start to catch on to this. And like I said, I have a list that any of you who wants, you can use, and I would encourage you to begin to read through the book of Revelation and, and start to consult with that list. But it's really awesome. But Isaiah 22, verse 22 says this, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. Now look at that. That's right there in Revelation 3. Now here's the thing. When the Bible writers are writing, they don't have computers. They don't have footnotes. They don't have quotation marks in the Greek. So they don't, they don't, you know, John doesn't say, you know, brackets. I got this from Isaiah 22, verse 22. He's just assuming you are steeped in the scriptures, and I'm just speaking out of that, and I'm being inspired out of that. But because of, of we don't have that same, you know, 
Uh, we're not steeped in the same way in the scriptures. We miss a lot of it. But when you see it, he's just pulling us directly from Isaiah 22, verse 22. Okay? And so if you want to know what the key of David is, that he's talking about in Revelation 3, we've got to go back to Isaiah 22, verse 22, and say, okay, well, what is the key of David in Isaiah 22? Because that's going to show us. We don't have to do weird things with it. We have to go all kinds of bizarre places. We can just see why is John pulling this out? Why is Jesus um, pulling this out? And so if we want to find out what's happening in Isaiah 22, verse 22, let's just look at the context. If we go to Isaiah 22, verse 15, we're going to find out what this key of David is. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him. Okay, so um, Isaiah 22, verse 22 comes out of the, the context of, a, of a, uh, a prophecy that Isaiah is making against a man by the name of Shebna. You're going to see just a moment, it's a negative prophecy. It's against Shebna is a w- wicked man. Okay, and Shebna was the steward for King Hezekiah. Okay, now steward, when we hear the word steward today in English, we think of that as like the guy who, who you know, cleans up the, the dishes maybe after Hezekiah eats. We think of him as just a servant. And of course, he was a servant. But don't think of him as that kind of a servant. The steward was sort of the equivalent of what today would be like for a prime minister or a president would be called a chief of staff. Okay, he was the guy who managed the, you know, the king's head team, you know, political team. They wouldn't have called it that back then, but he was the guy who was in charge of the king's stuff, okay? And these stewards, as a sign of their authority, they would carry on their shoulders uh, this key, and it was a big key. In those days, keys weren't precisely engineered. You know, like today, we have these precise little engineered keys and locks, and we can fit a key into our pocket. Uh, in those days, a key was much more, you know, simple. It was bigger. It was cut out of a block of wood, usually, and, and so they would carry around the key. The, the king's steward would carry around the, the key to the king's palace, okay, that, that for the main gate to the palace or whatever, because the steward was the one who controlled access to the king. Okay, the steward was the one. If you wanted to go talk to King Hezekiah, you had to first go to Shebna. You had to go to the steward and say, I need an appointment with the king. So that's a lot of power because nobody gets to the king except through the steward. Now, in Judah, and, and most kingdoms in countries had a position, something like this, like a king's steward, okay? In Judah, this key that the steward would carry around was called the key of David, because obviously in Judah, the kings were all from the line of Judah, and so it was called the key, or from the line of, of not line of Judah, the line of David, sorry. And so the key was called the key of David, because that, that's where the authority was coming from. I mean, obviously, David was the big king there in that in that whole line. So they would have this key of David, and the steward was the one who controlled access into the palace in and out, okay? And so um, what would happen is this, the steward, if he, if he uh, you know, opened, if, in, it was in his authority, if he said you could go see the king, nobody could stop you from seeing the king. If he said you couldn't see the king, you weren't going to see the king, okay? And so they were the ones who could open the gate, and no one could shut it, and they were the ones who could shut the gate, and no one could open it. But let's just keep uh, reading here in Isaiah 22, Skip ahead to verse 17. Behold, the Lord will throw you, hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide lance. That's pictorial uh, language there. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. And I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. Okay, so Shebna's a bad man. He's the one with the key of David. He's the steward, but he's getting cast out of it, and a new one's being raised up, Okay. And in that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand. 
And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. So again, this steward is the one who controls access to the king. Okay? He controls who gets into the palace. He controls who gets to see Hezekiah. He's a very powerful person. Probably you know, one, you know, one of the top two or three most powerful people in the land after Hezekiah, after the king. And he, they are the ones, whoever holds the key, whoever has that authority, they are the ones who can shut and no one can open it. If they shut the door to the king, if they shut the door to something, they oversee the king's you know, possessions, the king's staff. If they shut something, you can't open it. That's the authority. If they open something, then, then you can't shut it. All right? So really important. Now, let's go back to Revelation 3 verse 10. Jesus is introducing himself to the Christians at Philadelphia, and he says, I am the one who has the king, the, the, the key of David, okay? What's he saying? Well, the question is, who controls access to the Father, to God? Jesus, right? What does it say in John chapter 14, verse 6? Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, right? Ephesians 2, verse 18, for through him, that's Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. It's through Jesus. He's the one who has the authority. He's the one who has the power. He's the one who decides who can go into the presence of the Father and who can. He's the one who has the keys to the kingdom. He's the one who decides who goes into the kingdom of God and who doesn't. And so he introduces himself to the Philadelphian Christians. I'm the one who has the, King of David. I'm the key of David. I'm the one who decides who gets access to God. I'm the one who decides who has access into the kingdom of God. Okay? That's the key, the key of David, all right? And uh, now you say, well, why would he introduce himself that way to the, to the Christians of Philadelphia? Why that specific? I mean, each letter, there's a different introduction, and Jesus talks about something different. So why to the church of Philadelphia does he use this whole key of David concept? Why is he talking about access to the Father? Why is he talking about access into the kingdom? Well, a little bit of background, a little bit of context, Okay. Uh, at Philadelphia, the, the source of the persecution for the church at Philadelphia was a little different than in, in the other cities. The source of the persecution in Philadelphia was actually coming from a group of Jews, okay? And the synagogue there, um, the, 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 uh, the non-believing Jews were persecuting. At first, it started with persecuting the Christian Jews, but then it just became all the Christians in general. But they were stirring up trouble for the Christians, and, and they, there was this theological, this theological conflict. These Jews who had rejected Jesus were using the Old Testament scriptures, and they were saying, we're the real people of God. We are the Jewish people. We are the ones who follow the name of Yahweh. We are the ones who are going to the kingdom of God. And you guys are blasphemers saying that Jesus is God. We're the ones who follow Yahweh. We're the real people of God. And so there's this theological conflict, and stemming out of this theological conflict is also coming some severe persecution and so into this theological conflict where this one group of people is using the scriptures to say we're the people of God and we're the ones who are going to the, into the kingdom and you're the blasphemers, Jesus comes and speaks and says, no, 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 no. I'm the one who decides. I'm the one with the key of David. And if I open a door for you into the kingdom, if I open a door of access to the Father, no one else can shut it. I don't care what scriptures they use. If I open the door to, to the Father, if I open the door to the King of Heaven, no one shuts it. And if I shut it, no one else can open it. I'm the one. It all goes through me. That's his encouragement to the Christians at Philadelphia. Okay? And so that's really important. Now, some people might be wondering, okay, I get the, the theological conflict that's going on here. 
between the Jewish non-believers and, and really what at first started as, as the Jewish Christians, later it included the Gentile Christians as well. But I get that there's theological conflict, but why would, why would persecution come out of that conflict? Like, why would this group of Jews over here be so, so adamantly against these Christians that Jesus would have to come in and, and speak to this issue so powerfully, and why are these Christians under such severe persecution? And so just again, to give you a little bit of a context, a little bit of a background to this letter and what's going on here, I just want to give you a little crash course in history in the relationship between the Jewish people and the church, okay, because this is really important. And because uh, a lot of people, you know, when we think of Christianity, we think of it as a non-Jewish religion. We think of the Jews as a separate religion than we think of Christianity, and of course, that, that is how it is now. Um, but, we, so we, but we think of Christianity as always having been separate from the Jews, okay? And the thing you have to realize is, is at the beginning, in the early, early church, the first few years, uh, you know, after Pentecost and Jesus' death and resurrection and all that sort of stuff, all of the, Christ, all of the early, earliest Christians were Jews, okay? Like you read the first nine chapters of the book of Acts and all kinds of, those are some of our favorite chapters in, in the Bible, for a lot of Christians, we love to read the first, you know, the first, those first chapters of Acts and thousands of people are getting saved and the Holy Spirit is coming on people and there's miracles and a, and a gospel is spreading all over the place. Well, in those first nine chapters of Acts, those first, you know, years or however long that was of the early church that's being talked about there, all of the people who were getting saved were all Jews, all of them. So you read in Acts chapter 2, for example, that's a famous passage, that's Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit fell on people. And it says that, that the Holy Spirit fell on people from all over the world, right? Who were speaking, in di- they, and they spoke different languages. And then the Holy Spirit fell on disciples, and the disciples spoke in tongues, and they were speaking in different languages because there was people there from all over the world. And so many times when we Christians read that today, we think there was people there from all over the world. We think that Pentecost happened to Gentiles. It didn't. Every single person who was there at Pentecost was a Jew, See, the Jews had communities all over the world already. They had come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. They even called it Pentecost. And so they were at the temple. Gentiles weren't even allowed in there, okay? They were, and so you read Acts chapter 2, and here's all these Jews, the Jew, but they're not Gentiles, but they're speaking different languages and stuff because they're from all over the Roman Empire, but they've come back to celebrate the Jewish Feast of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, okay, and, and now, okay, so now you have the church starts, and it starts to explode. But guess what? None of those people, when the Holy Spirit fell on those Jews, they didn't think they were starting a new religion. The Holy Spirit didn't fall on them, and they go, oh, we're not Jews anymore, now we're Christians. That's not what they thought. They were more Jewish than ever. Peter gets up on Pentecost and preaches a message. And his message is, guys, this is what we've been looking for the whole time. Our Jewish scriptures told us that a Messiah was coming, that Messiah is Jesus. And our scriptures told us that the Holy Spirit would fall on us, and that's what's happening here at Pentecost. And so thousands of them get saved. They didn't think they were becoming anything else. They were still Jews. They were only believing what was in the Jewish scriptures, that the promises were being fulfilled. So they didn't even know Gentiles could get saved yet. And so they went back to all their cities all over the Roman Empire and started to evangelize other Jews. And thousands of of Jews were getting saved. And so the early, early church, it was a, it, it, in fact, you, you know, the, the Romans, the first few years after Christianity was born, did you know the Romans didn't even persecute Christianity? And the reason was this. In the Roman Empire, whatever religion you were, when the Roman Empire would, would, would conquer you, you were allowed to keep worshiping your gods as you always had. 
But it was one thing, you had to also worship the Roman gods. That was sort of a loyalty thing. They wanted to make sure that you were loyal to them. So it was, so, okay, so any, whatever you were, you could keep worshiping your gods, but you'd have to add in the Roman one. But do you know who had an exemption? It was one people who had an exemption, and that was the Jewish people. The Jewish people in the Roman Empire were allowed to worship only Yahweh and not worship the Roman gods, okay? Well, when the Christians first started, the Romans didn't persecute them because they just considered them to be another Jewish sect. They didn't think of themselves as starting a new religion. They considered themselves to be living the fulfillment of their Jewish religion, okay? Very important. Now, why is this important? Of course, we all know, you read the Gospels, the Jewish leaders, the, the Jewish religious leaders and stuff, they rejected Jesus and said, he's not the, he's not the Messiah that's prophesied in our scriptures. And so what, what began to happen there is you have this, this rift begins to open up in the Jewish nation because the, the, the Jewish establishment, the religious leaders and stuff, they were very afraid of this new movement because thousands of Jews were going over to this new movement. They were afraid of a few things. First of all, um, once you start following Jesus, some of the customs from the Old Testament have to change because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the sacrifices, right? And so with these new Christians who were following Jesus, some of the Jewish customs were, they were, you know, we're not doing that anymore. And the Jewish religious leaders were afraid of losing their Jewishness, their nation. Uh, they were afraid of losing power. They were afraid of losing the status quo. They were afraid of all kinds of things. And thousands of Jews are going over to this new movement. And so this rift begins to open up. This rift all over the world, wherever there's Jewish communities, this rift starts to open up because these Jewish religious leaders now out of fear, they are trying to stomp, stamp out this movement and keep more Jews from following it. And so this rift opens up in the Jewish nation between those who want, were siding with the establishment and the status, status quo and those who were following Jesus. And Jesus actually in those early decades became a dividing force, a stumbling block for the Jewish nation everywhere. And in fact, Jesus himself predicted this, Matthew 10 I just want to show you this because it's going to bring some of his words alive, okay? I was going to bring some of the words of Jesus alive to you. Jesus predicted that his ministry would do exactly this uh, in the Jewish nation. He said in Matthew chapter 10, 34 to 36, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And he's talking about the fact that families and communities, Jewish communities would be split. The whole Jewish nation was splitting on the issue of Jesus. Who is Jesus? For and against, for and against. And people were being split in families. People were being split in communities. And so, okay, and so this is what's happening all over the Jewish world. Okay, so now we go back to Philadelphia. And this is now getting towards the end of the first century. So already by this time, there's an increasing Gentile influence. So now it's, it's starting to turn into kind of Jew against church. But it's not just the Jews. There's Jews on both sides of this thing. But you've got this Jewish religious establishment that is trying to stamp out. They're afraid for their survival. And they have chosen against Jesus. And so there's this theological conflict. And they're trying to convince these new Christians, and especially the Jewish ones, you are not the people of God. You are not the people of God. And they're stirring up all kinds of trouble in addition to the theological debate. And they're really persecuting this church hardcore. And so that's where this is coming from. And so Jesus comes into this now and he says, I'm the one with the key of David. And he's giving assurance of salvation and his pleasure in the future kingdom of heaven. He's doing that to these persecuted Christians, all right? So let's keep reading. Jesus says, verse 8, I know your works, okay? I know you're hanging on, you're persevering, and you're not compromising or giving up, right? Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, people over the years have taken this to mean that God was opening up some kind of mission opportunity for the church of Philadelphia, okay? And by the way, it's not bad. 
okay? Uh, and I've seen people use this verse for that, and it's not bad to use it for that, and God can give a rhema word where he takes a verse and applies it in a unique way to a church, to a situation that is not bad. It's certainly not bad to use this verse to say, you know, God's opening a door for us for missions. That's, that is not a bad thing. But if we're looking at this verse doctrinally, theologically, what is Jesus saying? This verse is not talking about God opening up or Jesus opening up a mission opportunity for the church of Philadelphia. This is talking about the kingdom of God and access to the Father. No one can shut that access on you. No one can shut you out of my kingdom. You're in. I'm in control. That's what he's talking about. See, the important thing you have to understand also about this letter is this. This church of Philadelphia was very small. They were very persecuted. Jesus was not asking them to start all kinds of new ministries and missions. The, if you, you go through this letter, his main message in this letter is just hang on. I'll show you this. Next line. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know that you have but little power. Last week we saw the church at Sardis, other end of the spectrum. You have a reputation, he says. Everybody thinks you're an amazing church. You know, that's the type of church where you got the big, the big building and the programs. Nothing wrong with that. We got the building. We got the programs. That's where we're at. We're not the persecuted little church right now. So we do with whatever we have where we're at. It's not bad to be big. But the church at Sardis, they had the reputation. They had all the, the outside flash, but they didn't have the inward spirit. Church of Philadelphia, exact opposite. I know you have but little power. They didn't have a big budget. They didn't have a big building. They didn't have all kinds of big programs. You have but little power. And I want you to notice what Jesus says to them. He didn't say, and now I want you to go out and start these new ministries and these new missions and all that sort of stuff. He tells them two things, and basically it's hang on. He's happy with them for two reasons. He says, because you have kept my word. Okay, you have, I mean, that's it. You're just thankful for them for that. Like, what about the glitzy this or that? What about, you know, what did you do over here and what did you do over there? No, no, Jesus says, you have but little power. You're not on the offense. You're just on the hanging on. And I am pleased with you because you have kept my word. You have not compromised the truth. You've not given in and you have not denied my name. See, there's something so powerful here about Jesus that we need to get, and we need to not be naive about persecution. I just, uh, I read a book uh, a couple weeks ago, and uh, I'll just flash the, the cover up there just to give a little bit of context, but I read a book a couple weeks ago. It's called If I Perish, but it's the story of Esther on Kim, and it's the story of, of the uh, uh, persecution of Korean Christians during World War II by the Japanese. And, uh, and it's, it's a tremendous story, uh, um, but during World War II, many of us, we don't know our history very well. And I'm just learning that more and more as I read. Um, we are ignorant in the West of the ways and how often and in how many places our Christian brothers and sisters are brutally persecuted. And many people just have no idea that the Japanese brutally and viciously, viciously persecuted the Christians in Korea during World War II. And they, they tried to force them to all recant their faith and worship at the Japanese shrines. And whoever didn't, they would, the most heinous, imaginable tortures you can. That's what they did to thousands of the Christian leaders. Like just the most hideous things imaginable, like unspeakable things. And, and, and that's what they did to the leaders. And they would take, and whoever wouldn't bow to the shrines, uh, who wasn't one of the leaders, they would brutally beat them and throw them into, into prison. Many Korean Christians had to run out into the wilderness and into the forest and into the mountains of Korea. And they lived literally during World War II off of roots and grass and plants. Many of them starved to death. It was an awful time. Okay? But you know what's interesting? As you, as you read this story, and now, of course, in all of that, you see also God sustaining 
power for these Christians, which is the encouraging part, and you see how regular these people were. They weren't super spiritual. They were regular like you and me, but you see God's sustaining power in them. But the interesting thing is, as you read this, because I think often as Westerners, we're totally naive about fiery trials. And what you have to need to realize is, as you read this story, and as you look at this church of Philadelphia, these people did not talk about planting churches or growing churches or doing evangelism during that time. You know what's the only thing they talked about during World War II and prayed about? Hang on to the end. Their only thought was just persevere. They weren't thinking grow the church. The church didn't grow during that persecution, but it was refined. It was refined. Yes, sometimes some of them, like Esther on, she'd be in a prison cell and someone would get thrown in there who wasn't a believer and, and they, you know, they were full of the Holy Spirit and they would win some people to Christ. But the church did not grow under oppression. And you know what? This is the thing you have to understand. We have to get a different picture about Jesus. Jesus wasn't asking them to grow when they were in that fiery trial. He wasn't standing over them going, Okay, now get going. We need to plant more churches. No, no, no. Hang on. Hang on. That's all he says to the, church, to the Christians at Philadelphia. You have, you know what? I'm so pleased with you guys. You don't have any new programs. You haven't started any new churches. But I'm pleased with you because you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Now, of course, none of us here today, we're not going, undergoing that kind of persecution. Um, but, you know, people here, we go through fiery trials too. Maybe not to that level, but we have fiery trials. And you know what I sometimes hear people? They're, they're going through a season in their life. They're in a fiery trial. And sometimes people, they feel guilty. They feel guilty because they can't do as much ministry as they used to do. They're not doing this and that. I used to do this, 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 and that for Jesus, and I'm just not doing it anymore, and they feel guilty. And I used to pray X amount of hours a day and do this and study that and read this Bible and memorize these, and I used to do all of that, and now and they're in this season of fiery trial. I know people who, go, who have gone through things like this. And then they feel guilty. I'm not praying as much as I used to. I'm not doing, serving as much as I used to. And they feel like Jesus is is nitpicking over their shoulder while they're in the fiery trial and telling them to get going. They feel unspiritual. And the thing, you have to be released from that picture of Jesus. In the fiery trial, he's not asking you to do more. His main command to you in the fiery trial is hang on to me. Just hold on to the word of truth and don't deny my name. Follow me. That's Jesus' call in the fiery trial. It's Jesus' call in the fiery trial. We skip ahead a couple of verses here. We see Jesus drive this point home. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. He doesn't tell him, take more territory while you're at it. That's for other churches, okay? That's for Southland today and where we're at. But the church in the fiery trial, he's not telling them, take more territory necessarily. Sometimes he's just saying, hold on. That's sometimes what he's saying to us in our lives too. Just hold fast what you have. Just don't lose what you have. Hang on. Don't let anyone seize so that no one may seize your crown. And again, maybe you're sitting there today and you still don't quite know, how does this apply to me today? We're not going through a persecution like that, not even close, not even scratching the surface, not even the same category. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're not in the middle of a fiery trial. Okay, maybe you're in between fiery trials, right? So you're wondering, how does this apply to me? I want to tell you two things, because Jesus has given this scripture for all of us. It's supposed to feed us all. It's supposed to give us nutrition, spiritual nutrition and nutrients. So what does this mean for us, though? We're not in the fiery persecution. Maybe you're not in a fiery trial personally. What, why do we read this passage? Why do we meditate on this passage? I want to give you two things. Number one, passages like this are supposed to strengthen us for the future. They're supposed to strengthen us for the future. You don't get ready for the fiery trial right in the fiery trial. There's things that happen before the fiery trial 
where Jesus gives us passages like this and he says, I want you to make your decision now that when the fiery trial comes, that you know what I'm asking you to do. And you know, we live in a, in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity. And we're going to see increasing hostil- hostility. It's, just, it's not going to get better. I'll just tell you that right now. Here's your good news for the week. It's just going to get worse. It's going to get worse and worse and worse. It will. Okay? Now, I don't know how bad it'll get, and I don't know how quickly it'll get bad. I don't know. I can't tell you that. Jesus knows. But it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Passages like this, Jesus confronts our hearts, and he stands before us, and he says, I want you to make your decision now. What are you going to do when the heat gets to here? What are you going to do when they really begin to publicly humiliate and hate you? What are you going to do when they change some of the laws? What are you going to do when they bring out fines? What are you going to do if they take away charitable status? What are you going to do when they write about you and put you in the media? What are you going to do? And the first sign of trouble, you're going to compromise and go, oh, oh, we have to make everybody happy. We don't want people to be mad at us. Is that what we're going to do? Or are we going to settle in our hearts right now that we're going to hold fast? What did Jesus ask the Philadelphians? He say, make it easier. Just compromise. Change your doctrine. Tell them what they want to hear. Is that what he told them? No, no. He said, hold fast and don't let them take your crown. What are we going to do at the first sign of trouble as Christians here in Canada? You know, we, we, we think about these saints around the world and we read these letters, but when our time comes, whenever that is and to whatever extent, at the first sign of trouble, we're going to change the definition of right and wrong. We're going to change our statement of faith. We're going to change the definition of marriage. We're just going to change everything the moment there's a little bit of heat and pressure on us. Is that the call of Jesus? Or do we settle in our hearts today that when our time comes, we know what Jesus is calling us to do, and that is hold fast. Hold fast to what? He said, you have kept my word. We're not going to change what we think about the truth. We're not going to change what we think is right or wrong. And you have not denied my name. And then secondly, on a personal level, a second thing, maybe you're not in an intensely fiery trial right now, but I wonder in how many areas of our lives we're under pressure to take the easy way out as opposed to going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, what do you want me to do in this situation? Oh, there's a thousand, there's ten thousand, there's a million ways that can play out in our lives, isn't it true? I mean, the easy one is, you know, you're in a bad marriage. Maybe you're here today, you're in a very bad marriage. You've had 25 years of not happy. And now you've just decided, I've had it. I'm sick of not being happy. I'm sick of whatever. I'm sick of taking this. I'm sick of taking that. I'm sick of how this is. I'm out of this marriage. You say, well, how does this passage apply to me? Well, the question is, do you think what you're going through is worse than what these people are going through? What you're going through isn't as bad as what these people are going through. And what did Jesus tell them? Did he tell them, take the easy way out? He said, hold fast. Do right. Hold on to Jesus and obey him to the end. You say, what are you telling me? That I just got to keep going with the status quo in my marriage? I didn't say you could just keep going with the status quo. But if you're willing to walk out, are you willing to pray and fast? If you're willing to leave, are you willing to come into the church and get some help? Are you willing to change whatever it takes in your own life? We're just going to take the easy way out. If we take the easy way out of stuff like that, how are we ever going to stand when there's real fiery trial? The call of Jesus is not do the easy thing, the thing that comes easy, the thing you want to do. The call of Jesus is do what he wants and trust that he will take care of you. It's not just marriage. Well, business and the marketplace and work. I wonder how many of us here today, right? When we all go to work during the week, you made a deal with someone. You shook hands. You signed a contract maybe even. 
and you gave someone else the impression that you were going to do such and such. And in the end, maybe you got off on a technicality, whatever it was, or you just reneged, you know, reneged on your deal or, or whatever, and now the, at the end of the deal, it's like this, and this other person on the other side feels totally gypped, like you took, took advantage of them, and you say, well, yeah, but technically I'm okay. Technically? Is that the call of Jesus? Technically you're okay? Well, yeah, but if I, if I do 100% the right thing, if I keep my word 100%, and if I do to them what I would want them to do to me, I'll lose money, thousands of dollars, or I won't make any money on these deals. So what a, what a waste of time. Oh, okay. Oh, you're going to lose money. Then do the easy thing. That's what this passage is teaching us, right? You think what you're going through is harder than what these people are going through? And what did Jesus say to them? Hold fast to the death. And if the call on these Philadelphian Christians was hold fast to the death, you can bet his call to us in finances and relationships and every other area is to the death, to the death of the finances, to the death of this, to the death of that. What kind of Christianity can we be said to have? What kind of Christianity can we be said to have if we cannot be 100% trusted, 100% to always keep our word? If we cannot be 100% trusted to always do to others what we would want them to do to us if we were in their situation. What kind of Christianity can we be said to have if we can't do that? Jesus is calling us to hold fast, not do the easy thing, not do the thing that makes us the most money necessarily, but to listen and say, Jesus, what would you have me to do? And then just do it, regardless of how hard it is in a human. Some of you are sitting there and you're going, oh yeah, nail them. Because you're looking over four rows at the guy who you feel ripped you off this last week. You get those dirty business people who come to church and pretend like everything's okay. Well, let's talk about you for a second. <laughs> so you've been wrong. You've been taken advantage of. Now the easiest thing in the world is just to get angry and be bitter, isn't it? Easiest thing in the world is to think bad of those people and think they're hypocrites and just come against them with your words and your thoughts. That's the easiest thing in the world. You think what they did to you is worse than what was happening to these people? Jesus isn't calling you to do the easy thing. He's not calling you to do oh, yeah, the easy thing. Yeah, you were wrong. It's okay for you to feed on that and grumble about them and talk bad about them and be angry and bitter. That's the easy thing. So that's what Jesus wants you to do. That's not what Jesus wants you to do. He doesn't want you to do the easy thing. He calls us to hold fast to the death, even to the death of our emotions, to the death of our finances, to the death of whatever, to follow him no matter what and trust that he'll take care of us. Hold fast. Let's keep going. Back to verse 9 here. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Okay, so again, Jesus is talking here. He says, they call themselves the people of God, but anybody who rejects me doesn't love God. He says, they say that they're Jews and they're not. He's not talking here ethnically. He's not saying they've lost their Jewish ethnicity. He's talking about there's Jews on both sides of the equation here. There's Jewish Christians, there's Jewish unbelievers, and, and these Jews are saying to the Jewish Christians, you've lost your people of God status. And Jesus says, no, 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 they haven't. You are the ones who are not entering into my kingdom. You might say you're following Yahweh, but anyone who does not love me does not love Yahweh, okay? Synagogue of Satan. Now, I should stop there for just a moment because over the years, many people in the name of Christianity have used this verse to say awful things about the Jewish people and do awful things to the Jewish people, okay? 
And Christians over the centuries, in the name of Christianity the church, I, I use that term, term Christians loosely because the hateful things that have been said about the Jewish people and done to the Jewish people in using verses like this show that these people did not know Jesus. But hateful things have been said about the Jewish people that, and they use this verse, God has rejected all the Jews. The Jew, they, I've heard paranoid people, Christians, they're just full of paranoid fantasies and hate and they do not know Jesus, who is a Jew ethnically in his humanness. And they say the Jewish, Jewish people who live in Israel today, they're not even Jews anymore in God's eyes. And Jesus has rejected the Jewish people. They use this verse. Jesus has rejected the Jewish people. He's rejected the nation. All the promise that Jesus gave to the Jews now belong to the church. And all of that, I, I mean, we could just spend a whole message, and someday I will. I'd just spend a couple of messages talking about theology and how we see the Jews in the Bible. That is not at all what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is speaking to a specific synagogue of Jews who were persecuting another set of Jewish Christians and their, and their Gentile Christian friends. He's speaking to this group and saying, you are not my people. You are not following me. You are not entering into the kingdom of God. He's not rejecting the Jewish people as a whole. I mean, if anything is prophesied in Scripture, it's this. And I could show you dozens and dozens of passages, Old Testament and New. If anything is prophesied in the Scriptures, it is this, that in the last days when Jesus returns... A massive revival will sweep the Jewish nation and all the Jews will gladly give their lives to Jesus in those last days. And the Jewish people will live in the land of Israel forever because that was an everlasting covenant that, that God made with Abraham. He is not rejecting the Jewish people here. He is rebuking a specific set of Jews and saying, you are not in my kingdom. Very important. And don't forget, by the way, oh yeah, speaking of which, of rejecting the Jews. The person writing this is a Jew. The Apostle John is a Jew. This isn't rejecting the Jews. All the disciples were Jews. All the writers of the New Testament were Jews. You know, the entire, you know, the early church, the earliest church was all Jews. In the first century, it was still Jews. Jesus is a Jew, okay? He's not rejecting the Jews, all right? So, next verse. I'll leave that. I get started on the Jewish thing and I passion. <laughs> verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you, we're going to finish now with this verse, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Because, again, speaking these Philadelphian Christians, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. There it is again. He's not asking them to go out and start a bunch of things. His word to them is just hang on and endure. You're in the fiery trial. Just hang on to me. For some of you today, that's Jesus' word to you as well. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, there is a really beautiful promise in this verse, a powerful promise. I'm going to pray for you when this message is done in just a few minutes. But before we see what this verse is promising us, we first have to cut through the layers of misconception that have been taught about this verse over the last century. And one of the big things that's been taught here in, in, in the Western world, this verse has been used... I'll keep you from the hour of trial, has been used by many people in the last hundred years to teach, this is talking about the pre-tribulation rapture, okay? And, and you know, many of the people who believe in pre-tribulation rapture, by the way, I'm not against those people, lots of godly people there, okay? But they use this verse, and this is one of their main verses, I will keep you from the hour of trial, and they say, this is a verse about the rapture, that God's going to rapture the church out before the tribulation, okay? Okay, so before we can get to what this verse is saying, we have to look at what it's not saying, okay? First of all, this verse is not about the rapture. 
you go through this entire letter to the church of Philadelphia, there isn't a single mention of the, of the rapture anywhere, okay? Second of all, this letter is written to the church at Philadelphia, okay? Um, I could take you back to verse 7, to the, to the church at Philadelphia. You know what that means? It means that everything in this letter has to apply to the church at Philadelphia. You're sitting there going, whoa, that's mind-blowing, right? Jesus wrote this church. Just follow with me here for a second. Jesus wrote this church. He wrote this church. (laughs) He wrote this letter to the Christians at Philadelphia. Everything in this letter has to apply to them. We come along 2,000 years later, and we take what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today. But we can't take anything in this letter to mean something it didn't mean to them. Is that not true? Okay? So why would Jesus give them a promise that didn't apply to them? Did they get raptured? Why would Jesus give them a promise that's for end times Christians 2,000 years later? This is a promise for them. And now we can come in and say, what is Jesus saying here? And then we can say, what does it say to us? But we can't make it say something to us that it didn't say to them. I will keep you from the hour of trial. What did it say to them? Never mind the fact that these people were already in the midst of severe tribulation. So is Jesus saying to us, hey, way to go. You guys are in the midst of severe tribulation, and at some tribulation in the future, I'll take you out of that one. Well, thanks very much. That's encouraging. They're in the midst of tribulation. Well, let's take a little look closer at what this is saying. I will keep you from. If, uh, Darlene, if you could put up the Greek there, I want to just show you. I will keep you from. The keep you from there is uh, from the Greek tereso ache, okay? And I'm not saying it right, so don't worry about it. Don't even email me. I don't care. Uh, you can read it yourself there, okay? I will keep you from, tereso ache, okay? Now, in English, we see from as Jesus is promising to take the church out of. That's where this whole rapture idea came from. Jesus is promising to take us out so you don't have to go through the tribulation, okay? Not what this verse is saying, Okay? Let me show you another couple of passages in the New Testament where that exact phrase is used, and let me show you that from does not mean out of, okay? For example, John 17, 15. By the way, this is a very important passage because John wrote this passage too. It's the same author. He uses the same phrase, and you're going to see it does not mean take them out of. John, writing in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, okay? Jesus is praying to the Father. Right before he dies on the cross, he says this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Let's just start right there. I do not ask. Why do you have to even say that in your prayer, Jesus? Just so we would know for later, he never asked that you and I would get taken out of this world or taken out of tribulation. He specifically said, I don't ask for that because God has some purposes for us in tribulation. And so he says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. That you keep them from the evil one. Well, he just finished saying, I don't pray that you would take them out. So what's he talking about keep them from? He said, I'm not praying that you will keep them out of tribulation. I pray that you will keep them through tribulation, that you will protect their souls from the evil one and keep them strong in the midst of tribulation. You know, let's let's just put this on pause for just a second. Okay, because I have to show you, part of our problem as Westerners is we, get, we interpret all of our theology out of this little cloistered existence we have here in North America. I read an article this past, sometimes we just have to get outside and think about what we're really saying. And then these promises just come alive to us. This, this promise is not being given to a church that's living an easy life 
like we can still live in our culture. This is being given to a church that is living a severely persecuted, fiery trial kind of life. I read an article this week uh, in Syria right now. Syrian rebels are crucifying Christians. They're doing unspeakable things, sexual things to women. They are crucifying Christians. They're wiping out whole villages. That's happening right now in Syria as we speak. Right now. Okay? Now we come to Revelation 3 verse 10 and we say, God is promising to rapture us out before tribulation comes. Can I just tell you something? Does that make any sense? That God loves us too much to let us go through the tribulation? What about those Christians in Syria right now? He doesn't love them as much? What about those Korean Christians in World War II and all over hundreds of other places? I read this morning in my, before my devotions, I'm reading a book right now on the history of Turkey and some of the stuff just coming out of this series I'm doing. Talks about the massacre of a couple million Armenian Christians and the horrid things the Turks did to them at the beginning of the 20th century. They went through awful tortures, tortures, brutal, massive amounts. Millions of Christians going through this brutal stuff. Can I tell you something? There's nothing worse in this world than torture and death. Okay, what those Christians are going through in Syria right now, what those Korean Christians went through in World War II, what those Armenian Christians went through in being the 20th century and all over the world and other places today and throughout history, what they're going through right now, torture and death, the Antichrist won't be able to do anything worse to people in the tribulation. Did you know that? And in some ways, it's a little bit freeing. He can't do anything worse than torture and death. Okay? He can't do worse. There's nothing worse in the tribulation than torture and death. So now, so now you're telling me that God loves us too much to let us go through the tribulation? He's letting millions of Christians go through tribulation right now. There's nothing worse than torture and death. So this is not a promise to Philadelphia. I'll keep you out of it. He says, I'm going to keep you through it. Galatians 1, 3-5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from, there's that word ek again, the present evil age. Now, okay, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us out of the present evil age? No. We're right in smack dab in the middle of this evil age, aren't we? From does not mean out of does not mean you get raptured out of this evil age or out of the tribulation. It just means through, from the present age. He protects the soul through, in the midst of the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, the promise of Revelation 3 verse 10 is a promise that Jesus, Jesus has put his own word on the line and his own strength and character on the line that he promises to the church at Philadelphia and then likewise to us, that he will keep us through, he will protect our souls in the midst of the worst trials and tribulations that can possibly happen to us here on earth. And let me tell you why I think that is very good news for us right here and now today. I know a lot of Christians who have fear for the future. Lots of people fear for the future. What's going to happen? It's not just about end times, it's about things just in general, but it's the end times as well. I'm afraid of what's going to happen in the world, right? Afraid of what's going to happen in our country. Afraid of what's going to happen in our, to our church. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to my kids. I'm afraid of what's going to happen to me. I hear people say things like, I don't know if I can hold up under severe persecution. I don't know if I can hold up under torture. I don't know if I can hold up in this or that. And there's lots of fear. Well, here's the thing. Let me just tell you the answer to, can you hold up under intense fiery trial 
tribulation, persecution, torture. You can't. No human being. We're all regular. There's no such a thing as super Christians who are just good at taking torture. We're all regular human beings. We all hate that stuff. We're all weak. If the future, if my future depends on my strength, then I'm scared for the future. But this promise says that in the fiery trial, if I will hold on to Jesus, then it's not my strength I'm relying on to stay faithful to Jesus. It's actually Jesus' strength in me that will protect my soul from evil in a fiery trial. Our confidence for the future is not confidence based on I'm going to get through it and I'm never going to deny Jesus. That kind of confidence will be shattered because we're all very weak. It's a confidence that says I just love Jesus, I'm going to depend on Jesus no matter what and it's His strength that will keep me strong in the midst of of, of trial and temptation and tribulation. And you know what? Jesus has already, this is the amazing thing about Jesus, I've been meditating on this this week. He went through tribulation himself, didn't he? He went to the cross. Think about this for a second. He didn't have to. He could have, I mean, (laughs) if I'm in the midst of tribulation and I can get out of it, like I have an escape switch, I'm out. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels, as the song says, right? At any point and gotten him off the hook. That's how strong Jesus is. He let them whip him for hours, agony, torture him in various ways, and then pin him to a tree. And, and in agony, at any point, he could have come down off that thing and called down fire on everybody and been out and healed himself. He could have, at any point, he went through the entire thing and he never buckled. He didn't run and hide. He didn't shirk his mission He didn't deny who he was. He didn't deny the truth. He hung there and took it all. That's how strong Jesus is. Now, here's the exciting thing. That same spirit, if you are following Jesus here today, is in you. So our confidence, am I weak? Are you weak? We're all weak. But our confidence is, Jesus has put his word on the line. He says, I put my spirit in you. My responsibility is to resolutely Hold on to him. Jesus, help me. Jesus, help me. Jesus, helps me. And then his responsibility is to keep us through the trial, through things that you could not do on your own strength. He can do. He can do. That's Jesus, and I love him. Weekly challenge is going to come up on the screens after the worship. I won't put it up now. We also email it out and put it on Facebook, but there's some things for you to go through there and think about with that. But I just want to worship Jesus, and then we're going to sing a song to him. I just want to thank him. I want to thank him in advance that he has put his word on the line, his strength on the line, that he will keep us through trial and tribulation if we will just hold on to him. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. We worship you, Jesus. You are strong. You are strong. You went to the cross and never came down. You went through it by choice. And we worship you for that, Jesus. We worship you because you are strong. You did not buckle. You did not give in. You did not turn around. You did not shirk. You did not hide. Jesus, in our human nature, we will do all of those things in trial and tribulation. But thank you that you have put your spirit in us. And we are resting in you and on you. As a church, corporately and as individuals, Jesus, we say that we want you to be glorified in this place. We want you to keep us through our trials and tribulations. 
And I pray for people, Lord, there's people here today as individuals, they're going through stuff right now. Someone died, someone's sick, something in their relationships. Jesus, I pray that rather than panicking and doing the easy thing, that we would be a people who hold fast to you and do right whatever the cost. Thank you, Jesus, for the work you're going to do in our lives and in our church. In your name we pray. Amen.